Does anybody know who John S. McElhenney is? Come on, somebody. Tabasco. And when you write those type of checks, you get to name your chairs whenever you want. Anyway, indeed, I am from Pennington Biomedical Research Center, located in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And you guys are thinking, well, why would someplace like Pennington Biomedical Research Center be there? Because Doc Pennington was one of the biggest oil men in the U.S. And 25 years ago, he wrote an enormous check to create the Pennington Biomedical Research Center. It's a remarkable place to work, um, I must say. And Baton Rouge is not a bad place to live. But I'm from California. I lived in Dallas. I lived in Denver. I lived a few different places. So I'm always asked, so what's it like living at the end of the world, that being southern Louisiana? I like to remind everybody, well, it's the sportsman's paradise. <laughs> this guy's pterodactyl, honey. And, you know, this is not my usual talk I'm going to give, because I threw some stuff in here knowing who the audience was, so it's not going to flow the way my talk normally does. If I get a little bit lost, well, it's because I am, and I'll, I'll fix it. Uh, but I'm going to talk about aerobic exercise and health. I'm going to talk aerobic exercise and weight loss, not the all comprehensive, just kind of a little niche thing we did, which I think is interesting and relevant to a lot of the work that goes here. And lastly, I'm going to talk about resistance training. We just had our big article came out, you know, it's an unbelievable amount of work. And um, so, A, we're proud of it, B, I think it answers a lot, a lot of important questions. And I like to start with this slide because there was a life-changing event, a world-changing event two years ago. Does anybody remember what it was? Two years ago, it was a world-changing event. A lot of it was central to here in New York. Well, that world-changing event was not the collapse of the financial markets. It was not a new president. It was, for the first time ever, we have federal physical activity guidelines. And you see, you're going, well, what does that mean? We've had federal dietary guidelines forever. We all grew up with the food pyramid. We've never had federal physical activity guidelines until two years ago. That's a big deal. It's a big deal for a lot of reasons. One is, is any federal program that's out there has to adhere to these guidelines when they give, when they give um, guidance. Um, two is these things hopefully will get mandated by Congress to be re-updated re every five years. Now, why you guys need to know this as researchers, because this is, and clinicians, I should say, there is, this is an unbelievable resource. There was a report that went with this. You're not going to believe this, but these were evidence-based. There's an unbelievable report that goes with this. It's a 600-page report which reviews physical activity in every condition you could ever imagine. So if you're ever doing anything, exercise or physical activity, go get that chapter of the report because there's your whole lip review right there. Then, the, the materials they rolled out from a public health perspective are remarkable. And I'm going to refer to one of the uh, sheets, which is actually right here as I go through this. So, anybody know who that is? Forrest Gump, what's he about to do? run for two and a half years. You don't have to run for two and a half years to benefit from physical activity. And I, I'm going to start off with kind of the basics. And the basics is what comes from the aerobic center longitudinal study database. This is pure epidemiology. This is, this is a database. This is the Cooper Clinic database. You know, why is this unique? There's a lot of massive databases out there, you know, where you're talking about nurses' health, you're talking about Frank Hammer or others. The unique aspect of the Cooper Clinic database, which wouldn't exist without Steve Blair putting it together, is the fact that every individual that went to the Cooper Clinic for preventive medicine exam got on a treadmill and got a fitness test. Why is a fitness test important? Because if you know someone's fitness, generally speaking, you know how physically active they are. Well, why is that important? Why don't you just ask people how physically active they are? Well, because they lie to you. And, and 
They don't mean to. It's just an inherently challenging question to answer. You know, there, there's work-related physical activity. There's formal exercise. Now, because there's been so many gazillions of tests done there, we can actually stratify people off of age and gender and tell you whether you're low, moderate, or high fit. And this is so low fitness, based off the time you're on the treadmill, your age and your gender, represents the lowest 20%. Moderate fitness, the next 40%. High fitness, the highest 40%. And the important thing here is, on average, on average, to go from low fitness to moderate fitness only takes 30 minutes of walking five days a week. So to become moderately fit, we're not asking you to be a marathon. We're asking you to just lead a physically active lifestyle. Now, why is it important to be moderately fit? This is one of many of Steve's classic papers he's published. <clears throat> Women on the left, men on the right, low, moderate, high fitness. Steep inverse gradient. And it's no surprise you know this. Physical activity is good for you. I think the real story here, the real action is compare low fit to moderate fit. Look at that huge benefit. Compare moderate fit to high fit. Yeah, well, there's more benefits. Incremental, I like to call it. The bottom line is, is when you go from a couch potato to a regular walker, you really reduce your risk. Of this case, we're talking about um, uh, risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. But we see the same thing for all cause. Just get out of the low fit category. What does that take? 30 minutes of walking, five days a week. That's where the real... Now, that's categorical data, what I just showed you. Whenever you categorize things, you lose valuable information. So forget about the categories. Let's look at the actual data. So we have fitness down here. We have risk of dying prematurely here. And this is what you would expect. You'd expect this linear relationship. Small change in fitness, small change in risk. Big change in fitness, big change in risk. This is the actual data. There's nothing linear about it. Look at the curvilinear nature of, of this fitness versus risk of dying. If you're out here and you're a 10K runner, and you become a marathon runner, you become more fit, you haven't reduced your risk. You're already bottomed out. But if you're over here, where most your patients are, especially if they're diabetic, and you start taking up a walking program, you improve your fitness a little bit. Look at how much you just reduced your risk. Look at the return on investment in getting low fit people to do anything. I think that's an important public health message here. Just get off the couch. Just start walking. Um, unfortunately, life plays a very cruel trick on all of us. As we age, we lose <laughs> 1 to 2% of fitness a year. And a lot of that's related to what's going on with the muscle. Once again, as we age, we lose 1 to 2% of fitness a year. Well, that begs the question. <laughs> Can we stop this decline in fitness? Or can we reverse this decline in fitness? If so, how much exercise does it take? How much physical activity does it take? Seems like a fairly simple question. Guess what? Really, it's never been looked at until we did Drew. This was the Drew study. The Drew study was the largest exercise study ever conducted uh, in one site in women. And, you know, it was postmenopausal women, sedentary postmenopausal women with elevated blood pressure. It was a dose-response study. We're trying to figure out how little can you get away with. And this is what we did. Well, let me go back. So what we did in Drew was, was one group got the consensus recommendation about 150 minutes a week. One group got half of that. One group got 150% 150, 100, of that. All of it supervised. We monitor every step, every heartbeat, every everything. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But I'm always asked, you're a physician. 
what are you what are you doing research all day? You just Google things? You know what? What do you well I do do a lot of that. But this is a day in my life. We screened forty five hundred women for this study. So we randomized four hundred and sixty four. So that means we had to tell four thousand postmenopausal women who want to be in an exercise study that they can't be. And fortunately we have ways of taking care of that. So you got put either into the control group. <laughs> The group that did 75 minutes a week, the group that did about 150, and the group that did um, about 200. Now, the, the minutes are not going to end up being that because we actually do exercise prescription based on weight. I don't want to bore you with all the details. So that's why the minutes that I show you are going to be approximate to that. 91% of women we randomized completed the study. 91%. Only women we lost, generally speaking, had a major life event. Husband lost a job. They moved out of town. This was exercise compliance across the doses. Across the doses, this is 97% compliance, 98% compliance, 97% compliance, lowest dose, moderate dose, highest dose. Now you're always, you get, there's all these exercise myths out there. I love them. You know, they, they fill the, the magazines up with these things. And one of the things I would always hear, when you get people exercising, they're going to sleep the rest of the day because they're tired. Okay, well, sure, whatever. If you get people exercising, they're going to be more active the rest of the day because they're energized. Yeah, sure, whatever. Guess what? You get people exercising, nothing changes in their life. <laughs> so we monitored activity outside of the exercise sessions. And you can see month one, two, three, four, five, six. These are the three different exercise groups. Nothing changes in outside activity. And it makes sense because these women had a life. They're not all millionaires who can go home and sleep the afternoon away. Most of them were school teachers. So we don't have as much flexibility in our schedules as we think we do. So threats to validity for exercise trials. We had a very low dropout rate. We had a very high compliance, both to the exercise prescription and outside activity. We didn't have people changing what was going on in their outside activity. And this is what we saw. Remember, you lose 1% to 2% a year. That's what we saw in the control group. Um, some details. The exercise prescription, or the exercise intervention, was six months. The intensity of which they walked at was clamped at 50%. If we went and walked the halls, most of you got this doesn't count. This is an exercise. This was meant to be a very public health, very clinical prescription. This is what we saw. A control group lost almost 2% of fitness over the course of six months. 72-minute-a-week group not only held serve, but they actually gained some fitness. The 136-minute-a-week uh, group gained even more. 192-minute-a-week group gained even more. Nice dose response. But this is where the action is. This is quite interesting. 72 minutes a week of walking. So 10 minutes a day of walking. Now, here in New York, you can do that quite easily. You know, Baton Rouge, good luck. Um, but look at the benefit of just getting off the couch, of just getting someone to walk 10 minutes a day at, at moderate intensity. They improved their, their, their fitness, which as I've already shown is a huge risk factor. We changed the trajectory where these women should have been losing fitness over the course of the six months that actually gained fitness. And I put this down here to remind you the importance of fitness as a risk factor. Now, once again, talking about the myths of exercise, you get this all the time. Oh, exercise makes you feel good. Oh, exercise gives you more energy. This and that. Largely untested. Or if it is tested, it's tested in clinical populations with significant issues. Cancer survivors, peripheral vascular disease. But, you know, in healthy populations, this is largely untested. 
Well, the Drew study represented a really unique opportunity to look and see how physical activity or exercise affects quality of life. So we did SF36 before and after participation in the Drew study. We've published this, and of course I didn't put the reference up there. It, it was uh, Corby Martin published in archives. And, and so this is quality of life related to physical health. How is your physical health affecting your quality of life? No surprise. You expect someone to exercise, their physical well-being is going to get better. And in every single exercise group, we saw an improvement in quality of life related to physical health compared to the control. This is where it gets fun, mental health, stress, anxiety, depression. How are these things affecting your daily quality of life? Once again, every single exercise can improve their quality of life compared to the control. And they can have that low of quality of life on this index to start with. So imagine the benefit of this. This is my favorite, change in energy, vitality. You ask a whole bunch of people, what do you want more of? I want more energy. I don't have any energy. Every single exercise group improved their quality of life related to energy. And this is the group I like to talk about that I'm so interested in. These women came into this study mind-bogglingly sedentary, unbelievably out of shape. We would walk them up one flight of stairs to the exercise room. We would have to sit them down to get their heart rate down before we started exercising. They were incredibly out of shape. They're coming in, and they're working on our treadmill for 60 to 70 minutes, three times a week. That's a lot of work. I don't care how you say it. That's a lot of work. Now, they say, oh, we're destroying their lives. Oh, I need to sleep all day. Oh, I'm tired all the time. No, they're actually, they were not silent sufferers. If they had an issue, you knew it real quickly. And this is what we found, this huge increase in energy. That, that, that's, I think that's pretty cool. Here We work the heck out of these people, and they come back to us and tell us, oh, I feel better. So summary point number one, accumulate at least... 30 minutes a day, five days a week, a moderate intensity physical activity. I'm always asked, what's the best exercise I can do? What's your favorite exercise? Well, the best exercise is the one you well do. But walking, 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 you can do it anywhere, especially in a great city like this. You don't need any special equipment. You don't need to join a gym. Um, but remember, even 10 minutes a day has benefit. And that's important because for some people, 150 minutes, it just ain't going to happen. They might have orthopedic limitations or other issues, but they're still benefiting from doing anything. Also, as you work your way up to that 150 minutes a week, you're benefiting the second you start. It's not an all or nothing thing. It's not like medications where you've got to get to the right dose. Just doing anything has benefit. Now, weight and exercise. This is where the fun begins. I'm going I'm to keep this fairly short. So laughter's the best medicine. I love this one. Doctor, the problem with fees and obesity runs in my family. No, no one runs in your family. <laughs> so what we think we know about exercise and weight, emphasizing the thing part, we think we know that regular exercise is critical to the long-term maintenance of weight loss. In other words, once you've lost the weight, the National Weight Loss Registry and many clinical trials suggest that once you've lost the weight, the physical activity is absolutely critical to keeping the weight off. That's kind of, I believe, the current stance. What's really interesting is exercise is not very effective in producing weight loss. It's really not. I mean, if you look at diet blows it away. Exercise adds a little to it, maybe a kg or two, but for some reason the exercise is critical to keeping the weight off. Now let's talk about exercise and weight loss because intuitively you would think, well, you should just be able to exercise a whole bunch of pounds right off yourself.
But unfortunately, it doesn't play out that way. This was a really nice paper done by Bob Ross and Ian Jansen summarizing this. It's a little bit dated now, but I don't think anything's going to change. And what they did was they looked at the amount of, of, of uh, these are all controlled trials, the amount of energy expended exercising by the amount of weekly weight loss. You see, there's nothing linear about it. It's very much kind of a shotgun blast. And of the expected weight loss, only 35% was achieved. And this, is, this was limited to the longer term studies, kind of uh, six or more months. And you look at this and you think to yourself, well, okay, there's, there's methodological issues in here. These guys are just doing something wrong. Maybe, maybe not. Drew, once again, was a really unique opportunity to look at this. So when Drew, we actually had two sets of weight data. I'm going to show you that the laboratory data first. And I, I love to call these the heritage plots because it was the heritage papers which make these plots so so kind of popular. So low, lowest exercise group, middle exercise group, highest exercise group. Each one of these lines represents one individual. And what you're looking at here is changes in weight. Remember, we had a 98% exercise compliance. This is not due to differences in compliance. Everybody was compliant. We were essentially 100% compliant. But go out here to say the highest exercise dose, almost 200 minutes a week. You had some people that lost a fair, a lot of weight, 10 kg. You had a bunch of people that lost a little bit of weight. You had some people that gained weight during the trial. I mean, you talk about data where the group mean is almost meaningless. This is, this is the epitome of it. So what's going on? So now we actually look at change in weight. We had a one kilogram weight loss in the lowest exercise group. Remember, this is not a weight loss study. We did not touch diet. It was an exercise trial. But they all wanted to lose weight. They never stopped talking about it. We had a two, almost a two kilogram weight loss in, in the um, middle exercise group. But then looks what happens in the highest exercise group. It actually goes back down to 1.3. Remember, we saw a perfect dose response with fitness. No such thing as a dose response here. Now, because they exercised under our supervision, because we know every step, every minute, every heartbeat, we can quote unquote calculate how much, how many calories they expended during the six months. And then we can calculate how much weight they should have lost. Because caloric expenditure was actually the outcome of interest when we were exercising. That's what we were tracking. So what you have here is actual weight loss, estimated weight loss, actual weight loss, um, actual weight loss, estimated <coughs> weight loss, actual weight loss, estimated weight loss. So you can see for the uh, 73 and 135 minutes a week, the actual versus estimated was right on. I mean, remarkably right on. You come out here to almost 200 minutes a week, it's about half. It's not even close. And it doesn't matter how you look at this. So these guys are losing about half of what they should have. Now, you throw in another study we did, which I haven't talked about yet, which is called Inflame, which is an even bigger exercise dose. It's like a third. So estimated actual. So you could be thinking, well, this is just a, this could be a lab thing. Maybe it's the way you're weighing people before and after. We have a second set of, lab, uh, of weight data that we can check this against. We weigh everybody every week in our exercise interventions. So we can look at someone's weight weekly for six months. And this is the weekly data. So here you have predicted weight loss based off the exercise expenditure. And here you have actual weight loss. I took out the error bars because it just muddies everything up. So just take my word for it. And the, for the lowest exercise group, there's no difference between actual and predicted weight loss. I mean, look, they track very nicely. 
For the middle exercise group, look at that. I mean, could it track any better than that? Come down here to the highest exercise group. Here's predicted weight loss based off energy expenditure. Here's actual weight loss. And it gets significant right about here. And, and why is this grayed out? Because this is when we were ramping them up. You can't just take people and throw them on the treadmill for 70 minutes at a time. In this instance, we took two months to ramp these individuals up. Look at how during their ramp, they're right on. Once they get ramped up, it just starts deviating away from the expected. Um, there's something else going on there, I was going to say. Anyway, it, 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 it's remarkably uniform, remarkably consistent. We see this in study after study. Something's going on there. So, some form of compensation is taking place in these higher exercise doses, the, the 190 minutes a week. And that's kind of scary because most of our weight loss recommendations say two to 300 minutes a week of physical activity or exercise for weight loss. Well, that's exactly where we saw the compensation. Now becomes the great debate. Why do some people compensate and some don't? Because it's clearly not uniform. Some people do and some people don't. More importantly, what's causing this compensation? That's where I think is so interesting. Are people eating more? Maybe. If they are eating more, what's driving it? Is it hunger? Is it reward? I know anecdotally, I think it's reward. We get it all the time. It's like, oh, we've got a big week. Wheels off. You know, I can do whatever I want this weekend. This weird belief, you know, it's not like we have gas gauges on ourselves that tell us how much energy we've expended. When you get on the treadmill and you work really, really hard, you feel like, you know, you've burnt a chocolate cake. But really, you've burnt like half a slice of that chocolate cake. <laughs> yeah, I, I think even for those of us who do this for a living, we have a problem matching calories with how hard we work. There's a difference between getting hot and sweaty and actually burning calories. And I think, yeah, I think that plays a big role here. But then, some people in this room got me thinking about something else. Well, maybe these individuals are expending less calories during the day. Maybe because they're getting fit. We're changing their physiology. You know, are they sitting more? Well, I don't think it's that. People say it all the time. Well, we've showed that they didn't change their outside activity. Are their muscles more efficient? If they haven't changed their activity patterns throughout the day, now that they're really fit, are they expending or fitter? Not really fit. Fitter. Are they expending less calories doing the same amount of activity because they're, because they're more efficient? It's an interesting thought. Stay tuned. We actually, Corby Martin, Corby Martin and I, uh, co-PI at a grant, which is about to start enrolling in January, where we're going to take individuals. We've got a control group. We've got a group that's going to do uh, 8 kilograms of KT per week. We've got a group that's going to do 20 kilograms of KT per week. We're going to do double label water. We're going to do uh, all the eating stuff. We're going to jump in people's heads and figure out some psychology stuff. We're going to try to create this compensation, but more importantly, examine the mechanisms behind this compensation. Because we just got that started, so I'll be back here in five years to talk about that. This level of exercise is not sufficient to cause a difference in the partitioning of what's lost you know, as muscle versus, versus uh, fat. I mean, could it just be that your higher exercise group is losing a higher percentage of the body weight as fat and actually the calories match? Um, I don't know. We, we didn't have decks on this. It was, it's, it's probably the, we were right on the cusp of getting the decks machine. And if we had, we would be having a very different discussion here. It's a long story. They were still real expensive when this, we forget, even if it started 10 years ago, they were still really expensive. In our other studies, what we see, 
and you will see a little bit of this in heart D. We saw it, in inflame, we did have DEXA, and the weight loss in the exercise group was about half muscle, half fat. It doesn't matter with the intensity of the aerobic exercise. Well, I don't know about that because we didn't look at intensity. Because right, um, no, that's what I was asking them is if you see a mismatch in the amount of weight loss, which is both muscle and fat, but maybe that mismatch isn't there because the higher level exercise group lost a higher fraction of oh, the calories yeah. as fat. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. If we had if we had the decks we would I can tell you it but I can tell you in, in, in inflame which had a much higher exercise dose of the weight loss it was half fat, half muscle. So there wasn't some sparing of, of, of lean mass. So I'm way ahead of schedule talking way faster than I thought I was going to be. I'm going to talk about heart D, which is probably more relevant than anything I've said so far to this group. Heart D is the, the paper we just had published last month. It stands for Health Benefits of Aerobic and Resistance Training in Individuals with Diabetes, in particular type 2 diabetes. You know, it's quite interesting. Most national organizations, ADA, CDC, uh, the consensus recommendation uh, suggests that for individuals with diabetes, they should be doing aerobic training plus one to two days a week of resistance training. Never been tested. Never been definitively tested that adding the resistance training is of any benefit. We know that aerobics of great benefit. We think resistance training is a benefit. So hey, let's put them together. That must be the best program. So before a few years ago, this had never been tested. Well, Ron Siegel was actually the first to kind of test it right. I mean, this is an elegant study. It was a, a remarkable job with this. And what they looked at was the effect of um, exercise type on hemoglobin A1C over six months uh, in, in type 2 diabetics. They had the control group. They had a group that did aerobic exercise. They had a group that did weightlifting. Then they had a group that did both. And here you see change in hemoglobin A1C over six months. And what you can see here is that by far, more obviously, the combination of the aerobic plus resistance is superior to your aerobic or resistance alone. Now, this study had some issues. One, all studies have issues, so I'll point out this study's particular issues. It's primarily Caucasians. Uh, it was 70% men. They, they were, it was a pretty healthy group of diabetics. Um, you know, this one you, there's another really important point here that it only took me six years to figure out, and that is they wouldn't let people change their medications. So whatever dose you came in on, even if you were doing a lot better, unless you were having a lot of hypoglycemic events, you stayed on those medications. It's really important to keep in mind as we move through this. But the biggest kind of weakness of this study and where these studies got beat up was how they delivered the exercise. So the aerobic did about 135 minutes a week. The weightlifting did 135 minutes a week. The combination group did both. It was additive, resulting in 270 minutes. So now you're left with, okay, well, is the modality what's driving this, the aerobic or the resistance training, or is it the total time? They're spending twice as much time in the gym, and they're spending a ton of time in the gym. This is not a public health friendly recommendation. <laughs> so Hart D uh, was NIDDK funded. The primary outcomes paper was published about three weeks ago in JAMA. We were, we were very fortunate. Um, the participants were sedentary individuals with diabetes, a hemoglobin A1C greater than 6.5, but later, what, less than 11. We had a 
really inclusive. I mean, it was scary inclusive who we let into this study. Um, and you'll see it when, when we do the descriptives. What we did is we compared the benefits of stretching the control group to aerobic at 12 kcal per kg per week, resistance training three days per week, basically 21 sets per day, or the combination, which was a modified aerobic and a modified resistance. Our goal was two things in putting together these exercise descriptions. One is we wanted to create descriptions that at the time, you, you write these things 10 years ago, a physician could legitimately look their uh, patients in the eye and say, do one of these three, these three things. Two, we wanted to match for time. As close as possible, we wanted these things, all, all the interventions to be about the same amount of time in the gym. It was nine months. We thought nine months was important because we knew that the, 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 the participants were going to be really unfit. We wanted some time to get them, to train them so they could train. It takes a long time to get individuals kind of up and running. All exercises supervised. Greater than 20,000 supervised exercise sessions. So what were you using to identify the training? Yeah, we'll get there. We'll definitely get there. Thank you. All, all exercise sessions uh, supervised. This was a mammoth team effort. It, it's un, it's just incredible what, what our the team and how they did this. And you know, I get to be the one that talks about this and gets interviewed. And really, I had the least to do with the study of the writing this thing seven years ago. So, primary outcome: hemoglobin A1C. Secondary outcomes, of course, my favorite outcome: fitness, strength, and then DEXA. I, I'll forget this, but I want to mention this now. We do have muscle biopsies on 60 participants pre and post um, that were compliant and they're equally spread across groups. We got kind of lucky there. Uh, everything I'm going to show you is fancy mixed linear modeling, you know, all data used, covariates, uh, baseline value for we looked at age, gender, ethnicity, duration of diabetes. And if, we, if I were to show you the pro protocol, it's no different than what. The, the whole analysis. Uh, 2,400 individuals screened, enrolled um, 262. And this is this is this is misleading because you'll get people who call up who don't have diabetes. You know, so it's not like you screen 2,400 diabetics. This is this is they could be calling for a long study. Um, 262 randomized. The only thing of importance here was we had to stop enrollment in the control group. Bad things were happening, and it, you, you couldn't. We had seven people who had um, hemoglobin A1C increases greater than 1.5, and it, we had a big argument in the beginning about even whether to have a control group, whether it was even ethical to have a control group. So I already wasn't feeling great about having a control group. And after kind of our, uh, what was it, nine people, whatever, it was after we kept having these issues in the control group, finally, uh, in discussions with the DSMB, we stopped enrollment in the control group. Um, that's always a tough, tough thing to deal with. Uh, this is our participants. And I got to tell you, I'm really proud of who we enrolled. Um, you know, we didn't even try, and we were half, uh, we were only half Caucasian. The other uh, was, was primarily African American. Body mass index of all, almost 35, waist circumference, um, uh, 63% female, very unfit. You see this. VO2 max of 19, number 15 is the social security level for disability. Um, average hemoglobin A1C was 7.7, .7, which was kind of a surprise. When we originally powered this, we thought the average hemoglobin A1C was going to be 8.3. But it really follows the NHANES data. 
The Antennas data shows in the year 2000, the average hemoglobin A1C was 7.7. In the year 2007, the average hemoglobin A1C in the U.S. was 7.0. We're getting a lot of medications on board in the U.S., despite what the press says. And you see this in this group. I'm, I'm going to show you this. Uh, and average duration of diabetes was 7.1 years. Once again, different from Siegel, when the average duration was about five years. 18, almost 20% of individuals were on an antidepressant medication, which is, is fairly common in, in, in diabetics, which I'm sure you guys know. But if you look at this, you look at previous MI, heart cast, bypass, there we Although I have it on here, I didn't put it on here. I think 40, 40 people, 47 people we randomized had an abnormal exercise EKG, significant abnormal exercise EKG that we referred out and they got clearance and came back. So granted, we, we, we had probably eight cabbages when we referred out that didn't get clearance and didn't come back. But a lot of our, a lot of our people did. And, and neuropathy, almost 20% of them re, uh, re, reported uh, mild to moderate neuropathy symptoms. And you can see this. This, once again, really follows the NHANES data. Look at the LDL, 96, um, you know, uh, with almost 64% uh, of people on a statin most of the time. And they eat nice systolic and diastolic because 80% were on blood pressure medications. And then you're going to look at this and you're like, this must be a really affluent population with really good health care. It really wasn't. It was remarkable. We had subway managers. You know, we had, had a lot of school teachers. We had, we had people who, when Hurricane Gustav hit, it rocked us. I mean, we, we lost like half our study population for a while. Um, so don't let the numbers fool you. I really think it closely matches what's going on in Manhattan. I think it's very reflective of what's going on in the U.S. And here's the diabetes medications. There you go. 97% of people were on something. On average, if you add up all their medications, it's 200%. So that means on average, people were on at least two medications. And yes, we included insulin users. 20%, almost 20% of our population was, was using some form of insulin. Uh, retention, 94% follow-up. We got follow-up data on 94% of people. This includes going to barber shops and drawing blood and people who had loaded guns next to them. Uh, <laughs> that cost me a bottle of wine. Uh, uh, so, but that certainly does not mean that I mean, they were back compliant. This was a real, real, real challenge keeping people in the study. We had a harder time with these individuals than we've had with clinically depressed individuals in the past. Um, and I'll, I'll expand on that. So we, we define compliance as greater than 70%. 72% uh, of the aerobic group met that. 82% of the resistance training, 82% of the combo. And I started that for a reason. This was a really interesting anecdotal finding. Uh, when I would do the exams at baseline, especially the women, oh, don't give me that weightlifting. I don't want to look like those women in those magazines. And I'd, and I'd be like, well, you're not going to look like the women in the magazines. It'll be fine. They, they, they just didn't want it. Once they got the weightlifting and once they started doing it, you couldn't get them out of the weight room. They loved it. Um, we've never seen that reaction to the treadmill. Um, <laughs> and I really think it's because they get some tone in their arms, they get some tone in their shoulders, and I'm going to show this data, you're always getting stronger. Come on, it is what it is with the world. If you start doing your treadmill after a month or two, you're kind of increased your fitness, you ain't going to get any more fit. There's no positive returns. Also, I mean, they're in the weight room, blah, 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 blah. I, 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 think, it's, I think it's a good social experience. <laughs> So we really struggled to keep our aerobic people in. I've, I've never had any trials like this. We really struggled to keep the aerobic people in. The resistance training, 
Uh, I almost feel like that 82% is, is actually lower than I would have expected. The combo group was no issue because they did both. So here's the intervention data just to show kind of what we did. This is average weight lifted per week. And this is for the RT group. You know, here's where we're ramping them up. And I want to make the point here that you, know, you get it at four months. <coughs> I could blow this up. But they're still gaining strength at nine months. I think that's it. What if we kept this going? Would they continue to be getting stronger 10, 12, 18 months? Uh, here's, the, uh, uh, here's the resistance training for the combination group. Same thing. They're still getting stronger at nine months. Remember that the, the resistance training in the combo group is considerably less than the resistance training group. Now, I, I know this is crowded and, and, and a mess, but I'll, I'll make it really simple. I, I, this, is, this is the training across every single month for the aerobic group, for the combination group. But focus over here. This is all you need to know. By far, the most common frequency was three times a week that people came in. They have the option of five. Virtually everybody wants to do three days a week. They, they self-selected their intensity. They were right on the edge of moderate to vigorous. They, they were actually kind of bordering into vigorous. So they didn't, they didn't do the 50% we saw in Drew. These guys were up there. Speed, they tend not to change their speed. They tended to really increase the grade of the treadmill. You see they go from a grade of like 3.7 up to 6.8. As you increase grade, you increase the METs. You can see the training effect. Their METs going up. Now, because we're doing these fixed doses, they're getting their dose done faster. So time actually goes down over, over the nine months. They're, they're doing the same amount of work in less time. And, and I want to make this point. You know, the, the consensus recommendation is 150 minutes a week uh, or a moderate intensity or 75 minutes a week of jogging. There's actually a matrix that goes with it. And, and what you can do is you can calculate met minutes per week. And the real recommendation is 500 to 1,000 net minutes per week. And that's what this box is. This box is the recommendation of, of 500 to 1,000 net minutes per week. And you can see it. Every week for both groups, we were meeting the consensus recommendation. I'm sorry, the 2008 Federal Physical Activity Guidelines for aerobic. So we, we met the, we met the um, and this is what we did for time. And I will be the first to admit, this is rough. Some of this... Tracking the time in resistance training was a little bit of voodoo, but these were our numbers. Resistance training, they spent 141 minutes a week. Aerobic spent about 140 minutes a week. The combination spent about 110 minutes a week in aerobic and 30 to 40 minutes in, in resistance. You know, they're about the same. What we're, sh what we're sure of is no one group did twice the other group. So we're, we're, we did the best we could. We met our goals. The total exercise time was similar across groups. And um, the delivered aerobic interventions met current federal physical activity guidelines. And also, of course, no change in outside activity. This is steps per day for the exercise groups over the nine months. And you know, all we had was FFQ. It is what it is. You can't measure everything. And there was no change in diet according to the FFQ. And here's the outcome data. So this is hemoglobin A1C across the nine months by the three groups. And you can see, as I said, we shut down the control group for this very reason. You see it trending up. The resistance training group kind of came in a little improvement, aerobic a little bit better, combination by far the best. Now, everybody asks about this, and I have no idea what's going on. We have weekly weights. We have weekly compliance. 
If I adjust for all that, it doesn't affect this, these curves at all. I have no idea what's going on here. And I guarantee you we're going to dive into that and write a paper about it someday. And here's the actual data. So if you do control, subtract, and change the hemoglobin A1C after nine months, um, there was no change in resistance. There was no change in aerobic. And there was this, you know, itty-bitty, but statistically significant change in, in, in the um, combination group of, of, of 0.3%. Now, if you take people who had baseline hemoglobin A1C greater than 7, it gets a little bit more impressive. The aerobic group sees benefit. The combination group sees even more benefit, 0.6. Um, you know, we didn't see nearly the benefit that Siegel did, but I'm going to show you why I think so. So this is, oh, I'm going to check this out. No, it's the wrong slide. No, it's the right slide. So, you know, this is a complex group, and they're changing their medications. And especially if, if they're having hypoglycemia, they're changing their medications. So this was not my idea, um, but it was a brilliant idea, was to create a composite outcome. And the composite outcome was a hemoglobin A1C reduction greater than 0.5, or a decrease in diabetes medications. And as you can see, in the combination group, 41% of individuals either reduced their hemoglobin A1C by 0.5 or decreased their, their, their diabetes medication. Now, strength testing, clearly we improved strength. I mean, the resistance training group just blew it out of the water. The combination group also improved their strength, and aerobic and control didn't really change. This was tested with Biodex. And, and then fitness. And, and this is so interesting to me. You see very similar changes in fitness. In this case, we're looking at calculated METs. And we have measured VO2 represent calculated METs. Why? Because calculated METs is typically how you do it clinically. No one measures gases in the clinic. And all the EPI studies out there are not with measured gases. They're measured with calculated METs. So we wanted to do something that was, that was kind of clinically meaningful and you, you could assign risk to. And you can see both the aerobic group and the combination group uh, improved. Uh, METs on treadmill um, significantly. And this is so interesting to me because they're identical, yet the combo group is doing less aerobic. Despite doing less aerobic, they're seeing all the benefit. Actually, they're seeing more benefit, but that's another story for another day. Then waist circumference. This is what we always see. Everybody improves waist circumference. So the resistance training group, which I don't get, but it's in the literature, improved their waist circumference. The aerobic group improved their waist circumference. And then it wasn't statistically but the, the largest benefit we're seeing with combo group. Now here comes the fun. I took out the control group in the next slides. Nothing changes. I didn't want to muddy the waters. There's, there's no trickery going on here. I want to focus on certain issues. I took the control group. This is raw weight. And this is kind of cool. So the RT group doesn't change weight. The aerobic group almost loses weight. And then the combo group loses about a pound and a half kilograms. But that doesn't tell the real story. So let's look at the DEXA data. Well, the reason why the resistance training group didn't lose weight it's because they added lean mass. They lost fat mass and added lean mass. So a great example for if you're resistance training people, be careful what your scale says. Now, as I said, the, the aerobic group almost loses weight, but of what they lose, which isn't much, half of its fat mass, half of its lean mass, consistent with our other studies. This is the one I love, and this is where I think there's something interesting, though I don't want to overstate this data. In the combination group, all their weight loss was fat mass. They don't lose 
any lean mass. Their lean mass doesn't change at all. All the weight loss is in fat mass. Uh, I think there's something interesting going on there. So clinical significance, because I'm asked about this. So 0.3 to 0.4 would be associated with a 5 to 7% reduction in CVD risk, a 12% reduction in microvascular. Um, but, but more, I, I, this is not a medication study. You just can't focus on hemoglobin A1C. A one-minute increase, a one-minute increase in fitness is associated with a uh, 15 to 20% lower CBD risk. So I think if you look at the composite uh, of, of this, uh, there's a lot of positive going on. So summary, for a given amount of time, uh, particularly in individuals with diabetes, I really think this applies to everybody, uh, a, a program composed of both aerobic and resistance training is optimal. Remember, this is they're getting it done in 140 minutes a week. That's actually less than our recommendation of uh, 150 minutes a week. So in this case, it was 110 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous intensity walking, two days of nine resistance training exercise each. What we did was 10 to 12 repetitions per exercise. It took about 20 minutes per day. How to how to I want to bring this back to these guidelines. This is a really nice worksheet you can download there. And what I love uh, is on the back, they give these specific recommendations. And they just absolutely nail it. I'm the first to be critical of federal guidelines. And they absolutely nail this. Right up top, for all individuals, some activity is better than none. I mean, I can't believe they took the risk to say that. It's true, but they usually don't say these type of things. We already know this, 150 minutes of moderate intensity or... Um, or, or uh, 75 minutes of vigorous. This is for weight, but they even mentioned down here, adults should also do muscle strengthening activities. So our data completely supports the 2008 Federal Physical Activity Guidelines. As I said, this is a tremendous worksheet, which, which in my humble opinion should be at every clinic in the US. On the right side of this worksheet, it shows the evidence for all the conditions which physical activity may benefit. And I can assure you that most of your patients can find two, three, four, or five of those conditions. This is where you get this worksheet, if anybody's interested, or just Google 2008 Federal Physical Activity Guidelines. And lastly, you know, I always get to comment, well, that's great, but no one does this stuff. You know, no one's going to become physically active. Well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really agree with that. A lot of people do, and a lot of people stick with it. A lot of people do, and they don't stick with it. I think we're getting much, much better and getting people to become physically active and stick with it. To me, it almost borders on unethical, unethical to be providing guidelines or telling people to do something that we don't have science behind. But now we have science behind this stuff. So now we can look at our patients with great confidence and say, this is the best program for you. Now it's up to the scientists to figure out how we get people to do it and keep doing it. And, and there's, there's plenty of people doing that. But I put this up there. This is cigarette consumption in the U.S. Um, over the last 100 years, actually. And I put this up there for, for one reason. There was no one event which reduced cigarette consumption in the U.S. There was no one magical event. And it's going to be the same thing with obesity. It's going to be the same thing with physical inactivity. It's going to be a whole bunch of small things which add up. A whole bunch of small things. Some, or a whole bunch of moderate things. Uh, lastly, what fits your busy schedule uh, better? <laughs> Exercising 30 minutes a day or being dead 24 hours a day. Thank you guys. And I, I, I ended up going longer than I thought. I'm happy to open up for questions in the last few minutes. Thank you. <laughs>
about maybe starting at five minutes twice a day, even or ten minutes twice a day. Can you just talk about sort of the, the achieve the one minute, please? Benefit, or can you achieve that when you start that way? Because eventually they have to do continuous. Well, uh, yeah, there's so many things that we don't we don't talk about in this one hour. I mean, heart rate variability. We've done this heart rate variability in previous studies, and it's actually a tremendous risk factor which no one talks about because it's impossible to measure. And uh, it's a expression out to the funny farm if you try to measure it. And it, we, we see incredible improvements in heart rate variability uh, within weeks. Vascular reactivity, you know, same thing, incredible improvements. So the more deconditioned to be, the more benefit you're getting from that five minutes. You know, especially in New York, once again, pull a step counter on them. Say, hey, get me a thousand extra steps tomorrow. Because a lot of these individuals, especially diabetics, they're coming in at like 2,400 steps. It's crazy. Speaking of step counters, the goal is seven to 8,000 steps. It's not 10,000 steps. That is a completely fictitious number driven from a study in hypertensive Japanese men written in Japanese. And, 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 and the number's stuck forever. And it's not it's fictitious. Seven to 8,000 steps a day is the goal. Yes, it's great if a few days a week they're getting 10,000 steps. But there's no... Tree to the lock works upstairs, and he knows more about step patterns than anything to be on earth. You know, seven to eight thousand steps a day. They're probably getting 2,400, 3,000 steps a day. Try to get them to five, try to get them to six. Have you looked at the muscle biopsies? You mentioned that you've done that, but they're in terms of muscle One, sensitivity. Or? Next Tuesday. In the famous Dr. Rabbison's group, <laughs> we're going to get to see the data. I'm dying for yeah. it. I'm not convinced there's going to be anything. Why? And I'd love to get the input from this group. It's too diverse of a group. We've got men and women. We've got different ethnicities. We've got different ages. We've got uh, all kinds of medications on board. I'm really worried this going to be too much muck. It's not like your typical biopsy studies where it's so tightly controlled. If we see anything pop, I'll be incredibly excited about them. I'm trying to be negative. Is there any data or do you have any thoughts on whether sending somebody to a formal physical therapy program where they usually get like nine sessions, six months down the road, does that improve compliance to keep up with something? You like read my mind. I, I don't know many studies. I talk about this all the time. But our experience, the reason why people come to our exercise studies, one of the reasons is they want to start, they're scared. They don't know what to do. They've been sedentary for years. They don't know how to ramp up. And I, I, I say this to physicians with no evidence whatsoever. Send someone to PT to get that foundation to start becoming active. Um, I think it's a great option, personally. Or if you can do the cardiac rehab thing. You know, if you can find an angle for cardiac rehab. Uh, people, a lot of times the will is there. They're just scared and don't know where to start. So much stuff that we take for granted, you know, they don't, especially with the, never-ending misinformation in, in the newspapers, in the magazines. Um, you know, they have no idea, oh, should I do Tai Chi? Oh, should I do yoga? Oh, should And it's like, well, you should do anything. But yeah, I, to answer your question, I think it's a great option. Um, from a very anecdotal point of view, um, I think I'm going to vote for hunger being increased um, <laughs> with increased physical activity. At least that's what the obese patients that I work with you know, will say. I'm working out, but I'm getting very hungry. So I was wondering if, in your next study, if you do find that there is an increase in hunger, would you plan on looking at hormones, you know, hunger hormones, oh, ghrelin, PYY? We're doing all this. Okay. We're doing all this. Yeah. We, 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 uh, yeah. This is very unlike my typical study. My typical study is usually a clinical outcome, and 
and big and simple. This is not going to be my usual big and simple stuff. I'm not really actually comfortable with that design, but I'll be still. Is there a question? What about the 25,000 steps today for weight loss? 25,000? Yeah. Yeah, good luck with that. No, but that was the recommendation, right? Like 7,000. I thought it was more like 12. I hear 12 a lot for weight loss. And the funny thing about 12 is you're going to end up doing physical activity anyway. You're basically exercising. Right, if you're going to get 12,000 steps a day, you're basically exercising. Right, but that's You know, I, I, I think it's probably a pretty solid number, actually. For It's about that 200 minutes a week for keeping weight off. But, you know, we, 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 I don't want to, you know, we look at the National Weight Loss Registry. In some weird way, what you're identifying is the people who don't overeat. That's, you, you, the National Weight Loss Registry only gets to successful people. It doesn't get the people who, who work good with that amount of physical activity. It's always been just something different about those people. And they're getting about 12,000 steps just to answer your question. Do your subjects keep their lifestyles going after the study's over? That's a great question. Yes and no. Uh, we, have, uh, we do a lot to get them in the YMCA's, get them in groups. Um, we, we have some incredible success stories. Uh, we have some not-so-incredible success stories. Um, you know, but it's it's also not what we do. You know, we got a whole army of behaviorists, you know, the Phil Bradleys of the world who, I mean, that is what they do. Look ahead, DPP, weight loss management. Not what I do. I do very artificial stuff. It is what it is. I bring them in very artificial conditions. We do our best when we send them off in the real world, but it's not what we do. If I understood you correctly, looking at your data versus the sequel data, the implication would be that the subjects who had their medications manipulated as their health improved actually had less of an improvement in their like oscillated hemoglobin values. Yeah. And is that because you think the Siegel subjects were running around passing out all the time because they were hypoglycemic? I, I, I don't know if they were passing out, um, but I, I, I have to think that that played a role. I mean, if you don't take some off medications and their glucose levels are getting lower, and but that's a whole other issue. I mean, ours was meant to be very real world. That's why we didn't touch medicines. They actually took control of their medicines as if they were their physicians. We did. It was, it's, it's yours. It's between you and your doctor. Because we wanted to keep real world, real world, real clinical. Great. Thank you, guys.